What would happen if just 4 to 5% of those 30 to 40 million non-voting Christians got off the sidelines, registered to vote, and showed up at the polls? The church will have a voice. My name is Chad Conley. When I founded Faith Wins, it was to spread the truth that God's role in America is irreplaceable. Faith wins when people of faith vote their values. Our mission is laser-focused on educating, activating, and mobilizing faith leaders, providing them with the tools, the resources, and the messaging to leverage their impact in the political and the governmental arenas. We cultivate, develop relationships with pastors who share the whole counsel of God, who stand for truth. In just a few short years, we've engaged with over 50,000 faith leaders from all 50 states. We've done hundreds of meetings with some of America's leading congressmen, senators, political thought leaders, pastors, and more. And, And most importantly, we've actually registered over 1 million new evangelical voters during an unprecedented time, an unparalleled success, and all accomplished with just a part-time team. People ask me all the time, what's the secret? It's God's ordained from the pulpit to the pews, committed to faith, family, and freedom, because with Him, all things are possible. This, 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 this is our 1776 moment. Now more than ever, America's founding principles that were built on biblical values are under attack. The battle for the soul of our nation has never been greater than it is today. God has commanded us as his children to be salt and light. America's great awakenings and revivals have always begun in the local church. People of faith. Do not underestimate your influence. You can influence policy decisions and elect public servants with a grounded biblical view who will stand for religious freedom. Support traditional marriage and the family. Defend and support Israel. A voice for the unborn. People who will defend our democracy and have secure elections. If believers won't step up to the plate and get involved, who will? 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 You know, it's really not about politics or party or politicians or personality. It's about policies and principles that most closely align with our biblical worldview. From the courthouse to the state house to the White House and beyond. so much for having us. We're honored to be here. Y'all need to give Pastor Hoover applause. I really appreciate leadership, don't y'all? And um, our nation is hurting for godly leadership. We need people to stand up and tell the truth. It's like my pastor buddy said on the video, who will? Who's going to stand up in these times? This is unbelievable what's going on out there. And we don't believe it's about politics at all. We believe it's about spiritual life. We believe it's about issues that matter. And in South Carolina, we have a saying. We say, Jesus ain't running. Now, I know y'all may not say ain't in Wisconsin. So, I would say, Jesus isn't running. Jesus isn't running for office. 
Therefore, they're two people. They're imperfect. They're human beings. They're fallible. They make bad mistakes. You don't vote on politics. You don't vote on personality. You vote on policies and principles that most closely align with the biblical worldview. And I want to give you a little bit of background so you understand where we're coming from. Why in the world somebody from South Carolina is here in Wisconsin? Well, I came to see my buddy Brad Courtney. Brad was the state party chairman here when I was state party chairman in South Carolina and one of my really close buddies and really appreciate my friends Tony and uh, Nancy Nasvik from uh, over the other side of the state hanging out with us and Bob Crawford from over in Minneapolis has been on my Faith Wins team for a while and man to travel around the nation with David and Cheryl Barton is it, it's really an honor and so I grew up in a little town in South Carolina and, and uh, we didn't have a, anything but a traffic light and sometimes there's cars there it's a little place it's it's home of 400 county animals you know and and I grew up in a home where my dad was never confused he didn't have time out he had wear out it was belt clear and loop time here comes Bruce my dad didn't play that game you know you were going to listen to him and after a while your brain and behind have a conversation and obedience is better than sacrifice amen and so I didn't want to cross Bruce he's my hero today lives behind me and so I didn't know a time I wasn't in church I didn't know a time I gave my heart to Jesus in 1976 at a at a youth camp in Anderson South Carolina I went to Clemson got my degree in engineering and after college I went in the army the army is the first place I really had to examine do I really believe what I really believe y'all remember when you hit that point in your life like how did I come here why do I believe this and I, I met my college sweetheart we got married and I went in the army I was a tank officer and so I love blowing stuff up that was very cool to me and um I didn't have to serve in combat, thank the Lord. Uh, but I'll tell you, it made me think. There wasn't a day I didn't get my M1A1 Abrams and think, I could die. People, people died for this thing called freedom. You know, it's what really made me realize how special America is, right? I mean, God doesn't need a nation or me and you. He's going to fulfill his purposes. He's always looking for who says, here, I'm, here am I, I'm, send me. But he, he's like selected America because our founders said rights come from God, not from the state. And we've seen a real dose of this lately, what tyrants do when they got a little bit of power and they keep extending that power. So here I am, I'm in the army. I start thinking through things like, what is this thing called freedom? And, and why is it so special? You think about this. People come to America, and we hear it all the time, how terrible our nation is. Our nation's so great that the people who hate it won't even leave. I think that's awesome. I think that's great. There are places you can go, right? I mean, there, there are places that believe in this nonsense. And they could just traipse on over there and have at it. There's a line of people waiting to get in this place called America. I, I think that's really special. It's kind of the proof that proves what they're saying is all washed up. So I started reading biblical worldview books. I started connecting the dots. What does my faith mean? How does that play out? And I found this guy's stuff. I actually got to hear him speak in around 1990 in a conference, 1991 in a conference in Charlotte, North Carolina. I was hooked. I told Cheryl, I've got the original books, America to Pray or Not to Pray, from David that he had out there. And since then, I've read everything he's written because he connects the dots on God's role in America. Just like I said in the video, you know, you don't have an America without God in it. You never would have had religious freedom in the world unless some group of people said, we're not perfect and he's greater than we are. Because all throughout history, there have been kings and queens who decided what your rights were. And America said, no, 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 there are these rights that don't change. 
They don't change because they come from him. They're permanent. And so that's Jefferson's idea of saying any knucklehead ought to understand this. Well, we got a lot of knuckleheads today that don't understand that stuff. And so I, I get in the army, I, I, I pray through it, I'm reading biblical worldview, and, and it, I just get impressed. I'm supposed to be involved in politics. Now, I didn't want to be, I still think poly means many and tick means bloodsuckers. I, I didn't want to do it. <laughs> I didn't want to get involved. So it wasn't official, I didn't run for anything, but my wife and I knocked doors, we made phone calls, we started trying to elect godly people into office. You, know, you think about all this stuff going on today, and if there had been a Christian mama or grandma mama in the room the first time somebody said oh if a boy feels like a girl today he should be able to wrestle against girls or shower with girls or go to the same bathroom a christian mama or grandmama would have said that's silly we're not doing that next item move on but instead that idea has swept the nation it's permeating our churches our schools it is everywhere and it's being forced on you because we didn't do the common sense thing. So my wife and I, Michelle, would get involved in politics way before all that stuff happened because we were upset at the things we were seeing back then in the mid-1990s. In the early 2000s, we, we got really involved. I actually wrote a book on American Christian history and free enterprise, largely influenced by him before I really even knew the guy well. Now, he didn't know me. I knew him. I'd read his stuff. And then um, in 05, my wife experienced uh, some, some tough times. She had been through some depression with the babies when they, the boys came along. Uh, long story made short, and I won't go into it, but in 06, uh, my wife, 18 and a half years, committed suicide, took her own life, uh, left me a single dad with two little boys that, that uh, it's not a good thing, right? But I got to watch God work through that. Um, it's one of the biggest miracles in my life um, because I wouldn't have ever dared think I could ever do anything like this again. I, uh, Michelle was my everything. She believed in me, and uh, she was my encourager and my best friend, and I really thought we'd just grow old together. And to think that she took her own life, I, I knew she was bad. I didn't think she'd put a gun in her mouth. And uh, my boys were five and nine, and that day we came in from church to find her. Uh, I had spoken at Chick-fil-A the week before, and I'd said something I'd never said publicly all the thousands of times I'd spoken. I said, you know, I've messed up. I've made mistakes. I'm not going to be a failure before God and man with my wife and my boys. And the boys were sitting over here. Every Monday morning, Chick-fil-A does a devotional, a, a lunch and learn. And for some reason, I got to be the speaker. And I remember looking at C.J. and Bennett thinking, hey, Lord, that was a good line. I'm going to use that again. I'm not going to be a failure with my wife and my kids. I'm going to be a godly man. In my, I'm going to strive. On Sunday after that, um, we came home from church to find she had, she had shot herself. And um, the devil said, as soon as I'm holding her, ha-ha, you failed. Just, just like that. I pushed the boys away. I grabbed her. I pulled her to me, which probably wasn't the smartest thing. I said, go to your room, go to your room. I'll be there. I laid her back down, and I, the devil said, ha, ha, you failed. And I felt the Lord tell me this wasn't my plan, but I have a plan for Satan's disruptions. And about that time, Romans 8.28 punched me in the face. Now, y'all know the scripture. Romans 8.28 says, and we know all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Still gives me goosebumps now. That's 16 years ago. And um, I said, really, Lord, all things? I challenged God. I went right at Him. Really? R really? My 18 and a half years wife, my best friend's laid in a pool, but all, really, all things. And He asked me, did you believe it yesterday? I did, Lord. I need you to believe it today and trust me. And I, I told Him I would. Now, I, I was a mess. I had a hard time. I fainted in the casket room. 
my best friend who's a pastor from Frisco, Texas, we're going there next week, or this week, <laughs> uh, caught me before I hit the casket behind me because my little boy Bennett said, Mommy would like this one, there's angels on it. I uh, never even in my life thought about picking out a tombstone. It wasn't on my shopping list. But a few months later at my pro-life board, I'm on a board in South Carolina, my buddy kept persisting saying, you got to meet this girl, you got to meet this girl. Third time of doing that, I finally said, what's her name? Because I kept saying, get out of my face, I love you, I don't have time for no woman, I'm having a hard time. I said, what's her name? He said, Dana. And I said, "Uh, J.D., how'd she get single? And he said, man, the same way you did. And uh, her husband killed himself almost two years to the day before my wife. Uh, she had two little girls, had two little boys. That's, all, that's 15 years ago, Dana and I have been married, and we put a new life together, put a new family together. But the important thing is I got to watch God work. We walk by faith, not by sight, and I never want to minimize people's struggles because we all have them, right? We all really have them. But here was the point. God wasn't done with me. And if He wasn't done with me, then He's not done with you. He's not done with your church. He's not done with our nation. He's got us here for such a time as this. All this nonsense going on that infuriates us and upsets us, He left us here to fix it. That's remarkable to me. That's amazing, right? You just kind of pinch yourself. Well, Dana comes along. We're putting a new family together. We got a boy, girl, boy, girl. Uh, I think the kids were 10, 7, 6, and 5 when we got married. They're 25, 22, 21, and 20 now. They're doing great. And we put a new family together because God just, He wasn't going to abandon us. Romans 8, 28, all things. I didn't get a vote in what Michelle did, y'all. We've seen things we didn't get a vote in. People do things that are just dumb, and we pay the price for it. After that, I get back involved in politics. In 2011, I ran for state party chairman in South Carolina, got elected. Y'all probably know, I know Brad does, I know John does over here. There's the Iowa caucus, there's the New Hampshire primary, then there's South Carolina. So we get a big, bright spotlight. And I I did every political show on television. On one of those shows, a Wisconsin guy named Reince Priebus, y'all may know Priebus, he saw me on TV. I was literally beating up the party for ignoring the faith vote. Because I said, hey, the left doesn't do that. And it's not that people in churches want to be R's or D's, but they do want to vote biblical values. But you got to talk to them about what you stand for. So I was beating up the party. Well, Reince, who I was one of his 50 chairmen. I knew him, but I didn't, I didn't know him, right? So I, I text, he texted me and said, hey, I agree with you. I'm a believer too. I'd like to get to know you. After the election, I go see him. I said, you're leaving out the faith vote. I'm not going to push a party. I'm not going to push a candidate. But we ought to at least talk to him. And so he created a position called GOP Faith. Uh, I got to be the first ever National Director of Faith Engagement. That's how I met Brad Courtney back there. One of my first people I hired was Bob Crawford, who's been on my team now with me, partners for, what, nine or ten years. And uh, we went to 43 states doing this right here. And, and we tell people, look, we're, we're not having you, if it's a 1776 moment, we don't need you to walk to Trenton barefooted at midnight to attack the Hessians and surprise them on Christmas. We're, that's not what we need. We don't need you to attack on D-Day and charge up the hill of the German withering machine gun fire. That's not it. Can you register everybody to vote, and can you teach them to vote biblical values? Now, we don't have to charge the hill, but can you register everybody in your church to vote, and can you vote biblical values? 
And so in 2014, we helped flip nine Senate seats because we focused on the church vote. Never tell them who to vote. In 2016, we hit a record of evangelical turnout. Never told them who to vote. Never told them how to vote, but vote biblical values. You know, listen, when people say we don't do politics, can you show me where politics begins in your, in your uh, Bible and your spiritual life ends? Just show me where that is. I'd like to find it. I hadn't found it yet, and I bet Pastor can't find it either because it's not there. Because my God's big enough to be in everything, all the time, everywhere, and He expects us to be. And I think we as Christians have listened to people who hate our God, and they say, ooh, you Christians shouldn't be involved in politics. You're going to offend anybody. We, we, we're the ones that don't want to offend anybody, right? We're trying to reach people for God. When we so we put on our turn the other cheek, Jesus, and we back away. And I think times dictate we better find our turn the tables over, Jesus, because he did that too. I was in Israel last week, and you go up that temple mountain, you go, he must have been a big old boy, because I don't read where anybody challenged him. But he turned tables over because what he saw, he had a righteous indignation against what was going on. He said, Enough's enough. And I see, I don't think life is a political issue anyway. I don't think traditional marriage. I don't, I don't think that Israel, I don't think religious liberty, those are spiritual issues. Yeah, they've been politicized. That doesn't remove my responsibility as a Christian to tell the truth. I'm not a pastor, but I'm a Sunday school teacher and a deacon. I have a responsibility before God. Go read the book of James. Those of you who speak, those of you who teach, Sunday school teachers, leaders in your offices, leaders in your families, you have a higher obligation. And Matthew 5 is pretty clear. It says, if you're not salt and light, you are good for nothing to be thrown in the street and, and trodden under the feet of men. I don't know about y'all, but I don't want to be told by the Father, uh, hey, buddy, you were good for nothing. That's a bad place to be. And so here we are, we just want to get people maximizing Christian voices and votes everywhere in every election. Our little team got involved in Virginia. You saw the video. We've registered over a million people to vote. In Virginia, in January 2021, I had one donor come to me and say, do you believe what you are doing will work in a blue state like Virginia? I said, absolutely, because there's a lot of people sitting in churches in a blue-purple state that have given up. They think this stuff going on, we can't fix it. We never told them who to vote for, never told them how to vote, but we found 312 churches, thanks to Byron Fox, our buddy up there, an evangelist. Byron helped me out in Virginia. We had seven pastors. We ran around the state. We had 312 churches that registered 77,000 new Christians. And this year, instead of the governor last time, who applauded when they passed an abortion law to let babies who survived an abortion they wrote a law, y'all, literally in the state of Virginia that said, I mean, you think if a baby survives an abortion, what are you human beings going to do? I'm going to take care of that baby. They wrote a new law that said we're going to let the babies die comfortably. What? That's just wicked evil. That, that is evil. Well, this time, there's a new guy named Yunkin who won by six-tenths of a percent. By 65,000-something votes. I don't know if our 77,000 new Christians made a difference or not. We didn't tell them who to vote for. But I think it's a whole lot different from a guy who applauded abortion, killing babies who survived abortions, to a guy who prays in Jesus' name at his own inauguration. And I'll tell you afterwards a little bit more about what we do because we believe it's important for Christians to be involved at every level of government all over the public arena. David and I have done over 100 of these meetings. We've actually done 62 since the first of this year. This is our seventh, I don't know, 17th or 18th state we've been in. We'll live here tonight. We're driving to Iowa. Can't rely on the airlines anymore. They, they, they shut all them down and go figure. They got a shortage now. So we're driving to Iowa. We're going to do this meeting three times. I think we have 63 more of these meetings 
meetings in Bob would know 15 or 16 more states between now and November. We'll end up doing about 125 to 130 of these meetings in 22 states in 2022. Y'all catch the analogy there, 22 and 22, because we want to maximize Christian votes and voices uh, every state all across America. We believe it is exactly what God has us doing. And I can't think of a better way to do that than to let people realize how special America is. And the person that I know above all else, that he has, he knows more about American history. God's role in American history. You need to go to his museum outside of Dallas. They own 160,000 pieces of original documentation, 120,000 of them before 1812. So when these pointy-headed geniuses on CNN say, well, that's not what the founders meant, David owns the stuff. And when you read his book, they, they have primary sources. Here's what the founders said and did. And so I thought one of the greatest things we can do is take David around America teaching God's role in our nation so that Christians know it is our obligation to get involved. Y'all welcome up my buddy, America's greatest living Christian historian, David Barton. Thanks, Chad. I want to start with something that happened earlier this year at the American Bible Society. They came out with their State of the Bible report. They have one every year. And this one came out for 2022. And they look, and by the way, the American Bible Society, we're often told in academic circles today that the Founding Fathers, they really weren't religious. They were atheists, agnostics, deists, etc. American Bible Society is the largest Bible society in the world. It started in 1816 by the Founding Fathers, by signer of the Constitution, Charles Cotsworth Pinckney, by signer of the Constitution, John Langdon, by Mayor of New York City, Richard Varick, by, uh, by Supreme Court Chief Justice John Marshall, by U.S. President um, John Quincy Adams, etc. So, founding fathers that aren't Christians, right? R crazy. But they're the ones who started this. Now, these guys have distributed more Bibles than any other Bible society in the world. They distribute hundreds of millions every year. And in 2022, they came out with the State of the Bible Report because they do this every year. And in 2022, as you look at it, what you'll see is if you look on the right side, uh, the, the yellow box, and then you see the, the blue circle, and it really dipped. And we find out that last year we lost 26 million Americans. So 26 million Americans have stopped reading the Bible. And by the way, how does the American Bible Society define a Bible reader? They say that a Bible reader is someone who reads the Bible outside of church four times a year. That's not much. Even those that don't do much, we lost 26 million last year. Now, if you recall the Scripture, Jesus tells us in Matthew 4, 4, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Jesus makes it really clear, look, you've got spiritual food. Of course you've got physical food, but you've got spiritual food. You have a spiritual man that has to stay healthy and alive, etc. And as Americans, we're really good on the physical side. We will make sure we get three squares a day. We're going to eat those meals, and we're in good shape. Matter of fact, we're in way good shape. We're way over what most of the world is on the way that we consume food. But if most Americans were to say, you know what, I'm going to make a, a pledge that I will not eat a physical meal until after I've eaten a spiritual meal, most Americans would have starved to death a long time ago because we don't put near as much emphasis on feeding ourselves spiritually as we do physically. 
And so I'm going to challenge you, if you read the Bible, good for you. But I'm going to challenge you to read the Bible and read it daily. And if you already do that, read more than you do. Remember that Jesus said, and when He taught us how to pray the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. We should at least have one spiritual meal a day. And I'm going to also encourage you to go further than that and start memorizing Scripture. Memorize at least one Bible verse a week. Memory work is harder than just reading. Memory work actually makes you uh, dig into thinking about things and you digest it. We're told in, in Psalms 119, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Roman, uh, we're told in 1 Timothy 4.15 that if you meditate on what you've memorized, that it will become beneficial to you. So there's all sorts of verses on that. So I, I challenge you to do that. And as you look at that, I'll, I'll show you how this really worked in history. If you go back to 1787 when we had the Constitutional Convention, 55 founding fathers got together to write the Constitution of the United States. And of those 55 founding fathers, the one that was the most elated about writing the Constitution was Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin is the first guy in the history of the United States to call for the United States of America. Way back in 1754, he said, let's not be 13 nations anymore. Let's be one nation. Let's be the United States. Now, he couldn't get it done. He couldn't get people to go along with this. called the Albany Plan of Union, 1754, but he couldn't get people to go along with it. But this is what he wanted. Now, 22 years later, he's one of the 56 guys who signs the Declaration of Independence saying, hey, it's time for us to become an independent nation. So, now we're moving toward what his vision's always been. Seven years later, he's one of only three guys to sign the peace treaty to end the American War for Independence. Now, we're getting really close to being the United States. And four years later, he is sitting in the Constitutional Convention helping create the United States of America. This is what he's dreaming about for 33 years. He is a happy camper, kind of. It just didn't go the way he thought. Because what happened was the 13 nations we had back then, they, they really weren't states, they were nations. Um, a lot of them didn't even like each other. I mean, North and Car South Carolina, great example. North and South Carolina, they're different nations. They had border wars with each other. And in the colonies back then, if you went from one state to another, you had to stop at the border and exchange money. So if I'm going from North Carolina to South Carolina or South to North, I got to stop and exchange money because every state had their own money. We were not a nation. We were 13, we were a whole lot like Europe. And we didn't get along in a lot of areas. Matter of fact, five years ago when Europe was trying to do their constitution, uh, you had Poland said, we're happy to be part of the, the new European constitution, and we're going to make sure we put God right up front. And France said, well, if you put God in the constitution, we're not going to be part of the European constitution at all. And so they never got it done because they couldn't get them to agree, and that's the way America was. So when the Constitution Convention started, you had the Virginia plan, you had the New Jersey plan, the New York plan, the Connecticut plan. Of course, the guys from Connecticut didn't want the Jersey plan. Jersey guys didn't want the New York plan. New York didn't want the Virginia plan. And so five weeks into the convention, they have fought and bickered so much that it literally is falling apart. You you have Alexander Hamilton of New York who's left the convention and said, I've got better things to do than fight with the rest of you. I'm going back to New York. Uh, you have George Mason out of Virginia who said, I'm tired of the bickering. I'm going back home. George Washington convinced him to stay. But nonetheless, this thing is falling apart. It was at that time on Thursday, June 28, 1787, that Franklin gave his speech. And this is Franklin here. You see Franklin, he is the old man of the convention. He's 81 years old at this point. And in 1787, the average lifespan in America was 33 years old. So here he sits, and by the way, if you're a high school senior, you're here tonight. If you'd been alive back then, you would have already had your midlife crisis. Because when you hit 17, it's more than half over for you. You're sliding after that. So here he sits at 81 years old. He's in the convention, 81. And the speech he gave, he'd given a lot of speeches in the convention. But what he always did was he always wrote them down and had someone else deliver them. He would write out the speeches and have someone else give the speech. 
This one is the only speech he gave at the Constitutional Convention that was extempore. It's right off the heart, right off the cuff. It was just passionate about what was going on. And James Madison wrote it down. James Madison copied it, heard what it said, and he kept the notes in the convention. And so that's how we know what happened. And it's interesting. Here's Franklin. He's frustrated. This is what he's been dreaming for, and we're so close, and now it's falling apart. And this is what he tells them. He said, gentlemen, he said, in this situation of this assembly, Groping as it were in the dark to find political truth and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened, sir, that we've not hitherto once thought of once humbly applying to the Father of lights to eliminate our understanding? He said, In the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. Now, this is the room in which 11 years earlier they signed, they wrote and signed the Declaration of Independence. This is where Continental Congress met in, in those years. And at that point in time, our system was not bicameral. We didn't have a House and a Senate. We had one Congress, and it was just a single body. But we had three chaplains, and we did a lot of praying. As a matter of fact, you will find that by 1815, there had been 1,400 government-issued calls to prayer in America by 1815. We own hundreds of those original calls to prayer. John Hancock, Sam Adams, George Washington, John Adams, so many others. And so there was a lot of praying that went on, and that's what Franklin says, guys, don't you remember what we used to do in this room? And he said, our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. He said, all of us engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. And have we now forgotten this powerful friend? Or do we imagine that we no longer need his assistance? He said, I have lived, sir, a long time, and yes, he had. And he said, the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of man. He said, if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? He said, we've been assured in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. He said, I firmly believe that. And I also believe that without his concurring aid, we succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel, and should become a reproach and a byword down to future ages. He said, I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberation be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business. Now, may I point out that's not bad for your least religious founding father? I mean, Franklin's considered the least religious guy. And this clearly is a religious tone of the speech. And you saw a speech, and this is extemporaneous off the cuff. This is 14 sentences long as a speech. Now, here's the question I've got for you. How many Bible verses did you see him quote in those 14 sentences? Your answer should be 14 Bible verses. These are the Bible verses Franklin quoted by memory in that speech. Now, it's interesting how in the world, and, and Franklin, again, the least religious founding father, but see, this is where academics don't do a good job with it. What, what does least mean? Least is compared to what? You know, one of us in here tonight is the least religious person here. doesn't mean you're anti-religious or religion hostile. Maybe it means you're 99.7% to everybody else is 99.8%. So, Franklin is the least religious guy. That doesn't mean he's hostile. Matter of fact, you just saw him quote 14 scriptures by memory. This is just what came out when he started speaking. How in the world did Franklin do that? Jesus tells us how he did that because Jesus tells us in Mark 12, 30, or Matthew 12, 34, he said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
What you have on the inside will come out. If it's hate, if it's unforgiveness, if it's bitterness, if it's love, if it's, if it's scriptures, what's in here is going to come out your mouth. It always will. That's what Jesus pointed out. So, when you look at, at what's there, significant, Franklin had a lot of Bible knowledge. Uh, one of the things we have a lot of, well, I'll, I'll tell you about this in a little bit, but he had, he had a lot of Bible knowledge. And Franklin was really friends with a whole lot of ministers back then. For example, George Whitfield. Whitfield was doing the Great Awakening. He actually built a room on his house so that Whitfield could live with him whenever Whitfield came in the Pennsylvania area and in, in, in Philadelphia. He's close to all these friends. He's close to a guy named Samuel Cooper. Samuel Cooper is one of the great patriots up in Boston area. And his founding fathers just were really close to him. And Franklin and Samuel Cooper were good friends, and they corresponded back and forth all the time. And, and there's this one letter where the, Ben Franklin writes Cooper, and he says, you know, he said, there is such a difference between America and Europe. He said, when I speak here in America, when I speak to groups here, he said, I never have to tell them the scriptures I'm quoting because they all recognize it because all Americans read the Bible and they all know the Bible. As a matter of fact, this is, this is what he told Cooper. He says, it's not necessary in New England where everybody reads the Bible and is acquainted with scripture phrases that I should take note of the Bible references from which I take them. He didn't have to tell anybody at the Constitution Convention he was quoting the Bible. Because everybody studied the Bible, everybody knew the Bible. He's the least religious guy. They all knew what he was quoting. He said, but you know, Congress has appointed me to serve overseas, and I was an ambassador to France, and I was ambassador to England. And I found that when I spoke in, in Europe that they didn't recognize Bible verses. He, he says, but I've observed that in England, as well as in France, that verses and expressions taken from the sage of writings and not known to be such appear very strange and awkward to some readers. He says in Europe they don't recognize Bible verses. Well, I would argue that today America has become like Europe was 200 years ago. Most people have no clue Bible verses Franklin just quoted. And see, this is typical of so many founding father speeches. If you take, for example, Patrick Henry, Patrick Henry gave his famous give me liberty, give me death speech. And he gave it because at that point in time, he was a, he was a young legislator in the Virginia legislature, the House of Burgesses. So he's the young guy. And there's this, all these old senior guys that are so much smarter than him. And they said, oh, you know, we're being attacked and Great Britain's come after us in so many areas. And, and there's just nothing we can do about it because we don't have an army. We don't have a navy. They're the greatest military power in the world and there's just nothing we and he just had it up to here and he stands up and he says you guys are crazy he says we can and so he went into his speech and he ends it with give me liberty or give me death i'm just not going to live under tyranny and i'm not going to put up with it it's interesting when you look at franklin's uh, you look at, at patrick henry's speech it too is 14 sentences you can look it up and read it and you will find in those 14 sentences that he quoted a total of 11 Bible verses in 14 sentences. And this is just another passionate speech just off the top of his head. He's just letting the guys have it. And these are the verses he quoted. Now, I don't think those are the typical Bible verses Christians memorize today. I mean, how many of you memorize Ecclesiastes 9-11 or Deuteronomy 32? But see, he had, and this is what came out when he started speaking. This is common, and I'm going to show you some reports on American education back in the day, show you what the requirements were in American education, because this is just typical. These guys aren't special. Even Franklin, you know, he's the least religious guy, and he's doing what the rest of the guys did. This is part of what we believed as Americans and part of our education. And then if I take you to George Washington, became president in 1789, the only president we've ever had elected unanimously for two terms, actually. And in 1789 was elected, we were still on the verge of being 13 different nations. We, we created the Constitution, it's ratified, but you know, we, we still 
got this thinking going on that maybe is not right. So Washington said, I need to go visit every state individually. I'm going to go to every state so that they understand they're part of the United States. I'm the president. I'm going to go visit every state. And that's a big deal back then on horseback and, and carriage, etc. And so he lined out the states he's going to. And in 1790, he's listed the states he's going to. And one of the states he went into is Rhode Island. And as word got out that President Washington's coming to Rhode Island, there was a Hebrew congregation in Newport, Rhode Island, that wrote him a letter, and it was just effusive. They said, oh, we thank God for you. What you've done for religious liberties is just astounding. What you've done to protect our freedom. And they just gushed all over him. And so he writes back this letter to them, and it's it's a very cordial, it's a, a nice letter, it's a cursory letter. He says, you know, thank you for that. And then he answers them back, and he's just very cordial, and, and I look forward to seeing you kind of stuff. But it's interesting, that letter that he wrote is not very long. It's kind of like a presidential reply or what you might get from a governor or something else. It's not going to be a long letter. And it's a total of two sentences long. And in that two sentences, he quotes ten Bible verses in two sentences. The whole letter is nothing but one Bible phrase after another. And this is, and by the way, these are the, these are the verses he quoted. And again, you look at that, those aren't the ones we memorize. Who's memorized 1 Kings 4.25? You know, that's not the one we do. This is what they did. One of the things we did in the summer, we do a lot of trainings. We have a legislative network of 1,000 state legislators. So we work with legislators in all 50 states. Last year we monitored 159,000 pieces of state legislation. We can tell you what's going on with most issues across the nation. But with those legislators, they're all conservative. They're pro-faith. We call it pro-family legislators network. And so we deal with the legislators. We also deal with educators across the nation. We have two training sessions every summer for educators and college professors and teachers, etc. We do a lot with pastors as well. We do a whole lot with young people. As a matter of fact, we have sessions in the summer, one week long, where we take 18 through 25-year-olds for a week because we know what they're going to get when they get in college. We work with colleges all the time, work with textbooks and other things. And so we we want the young people to know. We know what the narratives are they're going to get. And one of the things we'll have them do one day for two or three hours, we'll just pull out a bunch of founding father letters. We'll pull out letters from Abigail Adams. And we'll pull out letters from from John Langdon. We'll pull out letters from John Hancock. All these different letters. And we'll just lay that letter out and say, here's a letter. And here's a Bible concordance over there. Your assignment is to see how many Bible verses you can find in that letter they just wrote. And most Americans don't recognize Bible verses, so they'll look at phrase and they'll try to find in court, oh, that's a verse. And it's just amazing. The, the founding writings are filled with Bible verses, but because so many, so many professors are secular, they say, oh, they're a bunch of secular guys. You only say that because you're so secular, you wouldn't recognize a Bible verse if it bit you in the ankle, because they're all over their writings. You just don't know it. And see, this is the fun part of going back and seeing that part of history. So when, when you look at what's back there, there is a lot of writing, and America's been blessed in so many ways. And it all goes back to this, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, what Jesus said, and this is what you find throughout their writings. And so what they produce for us, we enjoy and we often take for granted. Uh, you look at where we are in America today, we're one of 193 nations at the UN this year, 193 nations in the world. But you know, Cornell University Law School had a really interesting question. They said, we've had 5,800 years recorded history. We have thousands of nations. We've had thousands of forms of government, constitutions, etc. They said, what's the average length of a constitution in the history of the world? Which is a good question. And so they went back through history. They documented all, went through all the countries and what forms of government they had. And they said, we have found that the average length of a constitution in the history of the world is 17 years. Now, next week is Constitution Week for us. That's our birthday on the Constitution, September the 17th. Next week, we will celebrate 235 years under the same piece of paper. 
See, Americans, we just take for granted stability. We, we just assume stability is natural. It is not. 17 years is average. We got 235. See, this is why, because we don't understand how special we've been blessed, we're willing to throw things over. Right now, polling shows that college students, 75% of college students, want to get rid of the current system and go to socialism. 49% of millennials want to get rid of the current system and go to socialism. Show me one socialist nation in the history of the world, 5,800 years, that survived and that's been prosperous and that protected individual freedoms. You can't because it never existed. Well, it'll be all right. We'll do it. No, we won't. We won't. If you put your hand on the stove, you're going to get burned just like everybody else did, even though you may think an American will never get burned. If you put your hand on the stove, you will. And so we don't understand how special we've been with, with, with our political longevity. And, and by the way, in addition to our longevity, just take our creativity. Do you know, we measure creativity by international copyright and patent protection. America represents 4% of the world's population. So 4% of the world's population should produce 4% of the world's whatever. Right now, our 4% of the world's population has produced more than 96% of the inventions in the world. We're surrounded with stuff that the rest of the world would love to have. We just take it for granted because we have it every day. See, the same with our prosperity. Um, the, the Constitution requires that we do a census every 10 years. So we did a census in 2020, and the results were released in 2021. And according to current census data, if you live in poverty in America, and we don't want anyone living in poverty, but if you live in poverty in America, your lifestyle is higher than the middle class in Europe. The middle class in Europe is considered to be the second wealthiest place on the face of the earth. If you're in poverty in America, you're higher than middle class in Europe. Now, we don't want anyone in poverty, but you see, our definition of poverty is not at all. The World Bank says the global definition of poverty. The World Bank says that if you, if you live on $1,000 a day or less, that is considered poverty. That's a world standard. Um, this year, we had states like Hawaii, we had states like Mississippi, other states that came out and said, listen, Unless you make more than $61,000 a year, you should not come off government services because that's what you're going to get on government welfare. 61000 is government services, and the rest of the world considers 1000 to be poverty? See, we don't have a clue how blessed we've been. We just look at who we are and we complain about it, not recognizing where the rest of the world is. So, this, who are the leaders responsible for this? Well, maybe the guys that gave us our Constitution form of government had something to do with it. And that would be people like George Washington. It would be people like John Hancock. It would be people like John Adams. And they all played a big role. It's interesting to me that in 1816, a young man named Hezekiah Niles wrote John Adams. At this point, John Adams is an old man. It's 42 years after he signed the Declaration of Independence. Hezekiah Niles is what we might call a millennial of that generation. He was a young man. He had not been through the American War for Independence, nowhere even close to it. He was raised after that. But he wrote John Adams and said, I'm writing a book on the history of the American Revolution. It came out in 1822. It's called Principles and Acts of the American Revolution. We have his book. And he says, Mr. Adams, he said, I, I wasn't there for what happened, but we sure enjoy what we have today. But you were there. And so I'm trying to document where these ideas came Because you guys came up with ideas that nobody else was using. Where did you get those ideas? Who were the people that influenced you that produced what we have today? And John Adams said, well, you, you want to know where we got our ideas? John Adams wrote, he said, well, he said, right up top, you've got the Reverend Dr. Samuel Cooper, we talked about him, Franklin. And you've got the Reverend Dr. Jonathan Mayhew. And of course, there's the Reverend George Whitfield. Oh, and don't forget the Reverend Charles Chauncey. He goes through and starts listing preachers. These are the ones that John Adams pointed to. 
See, we don't study these guys today. We might know a little bit about Whitfield because of the Great Awakening, but the chances that we know these other guys slim to none. And we don't study preachers whether they're white or black. I mean, who in the world is Richard Allen or Absalom Jones or who's John Morant, who's Lemuel Hayes, who's Harry Hoosier? Never heard these names. Let me just take Harry Hoosier for a minute. Harry Hoosier was in the Great Awakenings. In the Great Awakenings, that's where you, you, the names we would know, you'd say, well, that's, that's people like George Whitfield, and that's John and Charles Wesley, and, that, and that's Francis Asbury. I mean, those are great, great, great Awakening guys. Francis Asbury, one of the biggest names in the Great Awakening, Francis Asbury wrote and said, Harry Hoosier draws larger crowds than I do. Harry Hoosier does? Never heard the guy. Benjamin Rush, who's a founding father, and we'll talk about him more later. John Adams said he's one of the three. He's, John Adams said out of the 250 founding fathers, Benjamin Rush is one of the three most notable. According to John Adams, it's George Washington number one, Ben Franklin number two, and Benjamin Rush number three. Now we never even studied him. Benjamin Rush writes. He said, "I've been to Harry's meetings. He said he's the greatest orator I've ever heard." You're running around with Patrick Henry and all these great guys, and you're saying he's a better orator than Patrick Henry? Yeah. It's interesting, Harry's ministry was largely what we would call blue-collar Americans. These are the rough-and-tumble guys. They tended to be woodsmen. They tend to be frontier guys. They call, they're what we call long hunters. A long hunter is someone who went deer hunting and would come back about eight months later having discovered two new states somewhere. I mean, they would go off on a hunt and stay out for a long time. Long hunters. And so, they're the guys that really like Hoosier. And, and they, these, these frontiersmen and woodsmen and these trappers and explorers, they're rough and tumble guys. And they're rough and tumble life. And they cussed a lot and they fought a lot and they drank a lot. And they got converted under Harry's ministry and their life changed. Their behavior changed. They still rough and tumble, but they didn't fight as much or drink as much or cuss as much. And it's interesting, Harry's ministry was largely along the East Coast, Philadelphia and Delaware and Jersey. And as these guys got converted and as America started moving west, by the time you get to the early 1800s, America has moved further west. And these explorers and trappers and woodsmen, they go west with America. That, that's what they like doing. They like being on the frontier. And as they got out there together, all these trappers are in this new territory. And, and the other trappers would look at the converts, these Harry Hoosier guys, and they'd look at the converts and say, Man, those guys are really different. What's up with them? And the answer was, <laughs> they're a bunch of those Hoosiers. <laughs> it happened to be the Indiana Territory. Hoosiers. I wonder how many people who live in Indiana know that they were named after a black evangelist. <laughs> Probably not many. Now, it would seem if you have a state named after you, that's kind of famous enough to be in somebody's textbook somewhere? Not today. You see, today we've got critical race theory because we've always been racist. There's never been blacks with any significance in American history. How come we didn't teach critical race theory 30 years ago? Because we knew too much about our own history. See, it's what we don't know today. See, we're told the founding, the American founding is all a bunch of white guys. Well, these are definitely white guys. These are the guys at the Declaration of Independence, and we've got a picture of every one of them. See, we know what every one of them looks like because each one of them individually had paintings. So, when John Trumbull painted this painting in 1821, he already had the portraits of all 56 guys and puts them together. How come they had portraits? Because they didn't have cameras back then, and you only got a portrait if you were really important, if you really did something significant. The average common person didn't get a portrait because it cost too much money, but if you're really famous, you got it. So, a bunch of white guys. Yeah, but what do you do with all the black paintings and black por por portraits that were back then? 
all the heroes, I mean hundreds of military heroes in the American War for Independence. I can take you through all these guys, I, I mean Benjamin Banneker or Jack Sisson or, or John Chavez or you have Peter Salem, I, I can go through all those names. We don't know their stories anymore. Just over here on the left, this guy, see him riding horseback there? His name is Wentworth Cheswell. He's a founding father, elected to office, black man elected to office in New Hampshire in 1768, re-elected for 49 years, held eight different political positions. He made Paul Revere-like rides. He helped lead the military in New Hampshire. Never heard of the guy. He's elected office in 1768 by a white group. Yes, he was. By the way, do you know when the first black was elected to office in America? It was 1641 in Maryland. Matthias de Souza. Do you know when the first black was elected to office in Great Britain? 1987. Do you know when the first black was elected to office in Russia? 2010. And we're talking 1641? I've never heard that before. Exactly. We, there's so much we have never heard before that if we knew who we were as a people, we'd think totally different about so many things. And so we've, we just become historically illiterate. We don't even know who we are as a people anymore. And, and as a result, we get talked into all sorts of crazy policies that are inconsistent with anything that goes with who we've ever been. This is why it's really important to know who we are. So, going back to, to who we've been as an American people, significantly, when, when you look at what we have, you go back to the early textbooks, and we have textbooks from across American history. First textbook ever printed in America was 1690 in Boston. Have that textbook. We have textbooks for the next several centuries. And we consistently said in our textbook, students, the reason America is different from all other nations is because of the Bible, the influence of the Bible. It's in our textbooks. Why would they say that? You can't prove that. Well, you can. There's several ways to prove it. I'm just going to use one. I think you all know what idioms are. If I talk about an idiom, idiom is a phrase that we use and throw back and forth. Do you know in English language we have 257 idioms that we use on a daily basis that are all direct quotations of specific Bible verses? Things you'll recognize, things I've said growing up. I'll, I'll talk about things like by the skin of your teeth, or I'll give you my two cents worth, or a leopard can't change his mind. Every one of those is a quote from the Bible. These are Bible verses where we took that idiom and made it part of what we talk about. Now, a lot of the ones that are used today, a lot of the common ones will have an eye for an eye and a house divided. And these are all Bible phrases, every one of them. And you'll hear these on a regular basis. As a matter of fact, one of the fun things I like doing is, is I'll be listening to the radio or driving in the truck somewhere. And as I hear some network or some station quote a Bible verse, I'll just text the office real quick and say, hey, this station on this day, this channel, this commentator, he quoted the Bible on this. And it's really fun because over the last four years, hands down, the national network that has quoted the Bible more than any other network, hands down, is ESPN. Now, they have no clue. They quote the Bible so often. You know, even four years ago, LeBron's going to the Lakers. He's going to take the Lakers to the promised land. Didn't quite work out the way they wanted. But nonetheless, they didn't have a clue where the promised land idiom came from. That's a specific Bible verse. And so, this is what we have on a daily basis. And, you know, next time you go to McDonald's or, or you go to Home Depot or Lowe's or, I don't know, you go to Walmart, whatever, you're going to hear somebody quote a Bible verse. And you really ought to stop them and say, hey, do you know what Bible verse you just quoted? Now, they'll be shocked and they're going to say, no, I don't. What Bible verse was that? And then they're going to say, what verse was that? And you won't have a clue. You won't know how to answer it either. Because, see, we don't even know those Bible verses anymore. The interesting thing is, every one of them has a specific address. If you want to look up those verses right now, it'll sound like somebody's talking to you in modern language because these are the idioms we use even. Did you know that even Shakespeare, in Shakespeare's literature, quotes the Bible more than 2,000 times? 
He never references it because everybody back then knew the Bible. I wonder how many guys who do Shakespeare on Broadway know they're quoting the Bible when they're doing all that stuff. I have not a clue. And Shakespeare, 2,000 verses in, in his writings. So the Bible is so much a part of what we did. I think where we are today is well described by John Quincy Adams, President of the United States. John Quincy Adams said, with regard to the history See, we've had a cultural default in America today. Today, if you recognize those, those Bible verses, those idioms, we would praise you and say, oh, that's amazing. You must be a tremendous Bible scholar. Back in their day, they would have said, wait a minute, you didn't know what verses those were out of the Bible? Shame on you. See, it was shameful not to know the Bible back then. It's praiseworthy to know the Bible today. It's the cultural default we've had. And that's what you see when you read their speeches from, from back in that day. And, and, you know, for the next few minutes, I'm just going to quote from President of the United States. Because you'd expect me or you expect Pastor Paul to say good things about the Bible. What you don't expect is that for 170 years in American history, it was the presidents of the United States who carried the water on the Bible. It was the presidents who were always telling Americans, guys, we can't survive without the Bible. For example, let me take it to Zachary Taylor. Nobody would think of him as really promoting the Bible. Zachary Taylor, war hero. Uh, Zachary Taylor, president. This is what Zachary Taylor said. He said, the Bible is the best of books. I wish it were in the hands of everyone. It's indispensable to the safety and permanence of our institutions. Institutions? Yeah, I don't have time, but if I can go through, I can show you that the free market economic system was built historically starting in 1620. 16, actually 1613, the first one, but 1620 is built on five Bible verses. And I can show you where they're applied, and I can show you the quote in the records. It's built in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, 1 Timothy 5.8, Matthew 20, Luke 19, and Matthew 25. I can also show you our form of government, a Republican form of government. There are seven forms of government shown in the Bible, and the Bible talks about each of them. We chose what was called a Republican form of government. The Founding Fathers specifically pointed to Exodus 18.21, Deuteronomy 1.15-16, Deuteronomy 16.18 as our form of government. Very different from what Europe had, but the Bible says, choose out from among you leaders of tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. Oh, so choose local, county, state, and federal. It says, choose able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. That's your qualifications for office. So, well, let's have elections at each of these levels. That's called a Republican form of government. Now, there are democracies as well. The Bible talks about them. The Founding Fathers pointed to several occasions of democracy in the Gospels and how bad they were and what it produced. And so, it's interesting that President Biden recently said, we have to preserve American democracy. No, we don't. That's a really bad idea. What you need to do is read the Constitution. Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution prohibits America from ever becoming a democracy. It requires that we always stay a republic. It says that, every, it says that the government of the United States must, must secure to every state a republican form of government. There's a big difference between a republic and a democracy. Most people today don't know the difference, but the founding fathers did. So, institutions, I can go through, I can take you through. I've been involved in 13 cases. The U.S. Supreme Court was involved in a case this year, involved in a case next year. And I can take you through a volume called Federal Practice and Procedures. Dozens of volumes on how to practice federal law. I take you to volume 30. There's 20 pages in volume 30 that talk about the Fourth through the Eighth Amendment, what we call the Due Process Clauses of the Constitution. In Federal Practice and Procedure, 20 pages show you the Bible verses on which all the due process clauses came. For example, the right to confront your accusers came out of John 8.10. 
the right to compel witnesses in your behalf came out of Proverbs 1870. I, I can just show you the Bible verses. That's in federal practice and procedure. It's not like a preacher's coming up with all this stuff. This is documented in our legal. T- See, that's what he said. Our safety and permanence of our institutions built on the Bible. He continued. He said, especially should the Bible be placed in the hands of the young. It is the best school book in the world. That's unconstitutional. Doesn't he know that's unconstitutional? No. Nobody knew that was unconstitutional for 170 years until the court did some judicial activism. We'll talk about that in a second. He said, I would that all of our people were brought up under the influence of that holy book. You have Ulysses S. Grant. He is president in 1876, which is the centennial celebration of America. He came out with this card in 1876. See, top left, 1776. Top right, 1876. It says centennial. It says, message of President Grant to the children and youth of the United States. What did he tell the children and youth? He says, hold fast to the Bible as a sheet anchor of your liberties. He says, to the influence of this book, we're indebted for all the progress made in true civilization, and to this we must look as our guide in the future. Again, president after president. Sounds like a bunch of preachers. Matter of fact, there's a whole lot of preachers wouldn't even say this today, wouldn't agree with this. And this is what the presidents were saying. Going back to Benjamin Rush, I told you that John Adams thought he was one of the three most notable founding fathers. Um, so many reasons. I mean, he, he's, he started five universities. He started academic education for women. He started, uh, he's the greatest, most famous physician in American history. Even today, he's called the father of American medicine. He trained the first black physicians. Uh, in addition to all that, he started the first abolition society in America. He also started the Sunday school movement. He, he formed the first Bible society. Guy's just amazing. He's also called the father of public schools under the Constitution. And in 1791, he did this piece that gave a dozen reasons we would never take the Bible out of our public schools in America. A dozen reasons we would never take the Bible out of public schools in America? Yeah, you see, this was so well promoted and so understood by early generations that if you go to the U.S. Supreme Court, there is a decision. And by the way, this is one of the quotes out of his piece. He says, The great enemy of the salvation of man, in my opinion, never invented a more effectual means of extinguishing Christianity from the world than by persuading mankind that it was improper to read the Bible in schools. He said, that's got to be the biggest heresy that ever come on any nation to say you can't read the Bible in school. So, this is the 1791 piece. But there's so many founding fathers who said the same thing, and we've got so many of their writings and original documents, that it's significant that in 1844 there was a U.S. Supreme Court case called Vidal versus Girard's Executors. That court case dealt with a school in Philadelphia, a government-run, government-operated school in Philadelphia that said, we're not going to do the Bible in schools anymore. Well, that made the Supreme Court. And at the Supreme Court, the, the court, unanimous 8-0 decision, the court says, no, wait a minute. If you're a government-run, government-operated school, you will teach the Bible. We're not going to have any school in America that's government-run, government-operated, won't teach the Bible. Man, I've never heard, did you guys get that in your history books in school? Well, it's a part of our history. I mean, it's part of the Supreme Court. What we get is what happened in 1963. In two cases, 1963, called Abbey and Shimp and Murray Corlett, in those two cases, the court, for the first time in American history, said, no, nah, we're not going to do the Bible thing in, in schools anymore. And the court announced, the court said, if you read that decision, which you can, it's online, the court said, it's been constitutional for 170 years, but it's time to do something different. And as a matter of fact, we think there's real harm to reading the Bible. And the court said that taking the Bible out of schools, they said, was without historical or legal precedent. Wait a minute. If there's no precedent for doing this historically or legally, why are you doing it? They quoted Dr. Solomon Grazel, and this is the quote you will find in, in the document on why the Bible goes out of schools. It says, if portions of the New Testament were read without explanation, 
they could be and had been psychologically harmful to the child. We've now discovered the Bible causes brain damage, and we're going to save all these kids from brain damage that comes from reading the New Testament. I would argue we've suffered massive brain damage since we've taken the Bible out of schools, not the least of which is, you know, the Bible is real clear about genders. It says God made them male and female four times in the Bible, two genders. You don't have to have the Bible. If you live in the country, you know that. You go look at any herd of cattle, you're not going to have any difficulty telling what the genders are with cattle or horses or anything else. It's all over nature, simple stuff. Two years ago, the LGBT, the LGBT community came to Texas and they wanted us to change our, uh, our health standards. And health standards is, is sex ed textbooks, etc. And so as they came, they let us know, they said, well, it's not LGBT anymore, and it's not LGBTQ anymore. We are now called LGBTQIA+. IA+. See, what the problem was, they had been four letters, then they went to five letters, then they went to eight letters, then they went to 13 letters, then they went to 17 letters. And with 17 letters, which some of the universities put out, the 17 letters, this is, they didn't have an LGBTQ plus policy, they had a 17 letter policy. The LGBTQ group said, look, we don't know how many genders there are. We currently have 93 genders, so we're just going to put a plus on the end of it, and that will cover all the other genders we come up with. So that was two years ago in Texas. That's where the plus got added to the end of the LGBTQIA+. Then what has happened since then is one month ago in corporate training, as they're doing uh, personnel corporate training, they announced that there's now 150 different genders in America. Now, by the way, you can go back to Massachusetts four years ago. Massachusetts gave you the option of having 37 genders on your driver's license. So we've gone from 37 to 90s up to 150. They've lost their brains. Yeah, exactly. Who suffered the brain damage on this thing? Because it's not even logical anymore. And where do you stop? And how far do you take it? And so the public policy ramifications of this are, are very huge. So going back to this, what happens is Dr. Benjamin Rush talking about the Bible and, and, and keeping the Bible the base of education. He said, the Bible contains more knowledge necessary to man in his present state than any other book in the world. I want to give you three examples. I want to introduce you to a guy named Matthew Mari. Matthew Mari was born in 1801. Matthew Maury is a very famous guy. I'll t you'll see why in just a moment. But born in 1801, he grew up and he loved the sea. So he joined the U.S. Navy. He went to sea as a sailor and he became a midshipman and then he became an officer and then he became a captain. Then he got out of the Navy. He started his own fleet of ships. He had his own fleet of ships and he's the captain and he has several ships. And he, was, he said he was ashore one day and had a stagecoach accident. A stagecoach accident crushed his leg. And his leg never grew back right after that. And so he could never go back to sea because he couldn't keep his balance on, on the deck of the ship with that, with that injured leg the way he had it. But he loved the sea. And so he stayed and he kept researching the sea. And he is today called the father of oceanography because he's the guy that found that there were jet streams in the ocean and he mapped where those jet streams were. Now, just for a moment, think about, okay, he's born in 1801. So let's say he's in 1840s, 1845, 1850. What kind of technology did you have back then? How did you know where the jet streams were? How did you know there were jet streams in the ocean with what he had? And by the way, what his technology did, it changed the economy of the United States. Because if you live, if you can see where the United States is there in South America down below it, if you wanted to go from Boston, if you wanted to take a ship from Boston and go to San Francisco, it took you six months because you had to go all the way down around South America and come back up. 
So it's a six-month trip to make from Boston to San Francisco. Once these maps came out, it cut the length of the trip to three months. So you could get from Boston to San Francisco in three months if you would stay in the jet streams as he marked them on the map. If you'd stay in those jet streams, the water moves faster there than it does in other parts. And so if you can do it half the time, you can get a lot more trips in. If you get more trips in, that's a lot better for income. That means you can drop your prices because you can get a whole lot more stuff brought back. So the whole economy started changing. People, prosperity started going up. It, it changed with, with what he did. Now, how did he figure out there were jet streams in the ocean? He says it. It's in his writings. He says he was homesick one day, and as he lay in bed sick, he asked his family to read the Bible out loud to him. They did. And part of the passage they read was out of Psalm 8, and this is what Psalm 8 says. It says, Lord, it says, Thou madest man to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, and all the fish of the sea, and whatever passes through the paths of the sea. He said, Read that again. And they kept reading it. Read it again. They kept reading We read it. Read it again. He said what jumped out of him passed in the sea. He wrote, he said, if God said there are pathways in the sea, then there are pathways in the sea, and I'm going to find those pathways. That's what led him to find those jet streams in the ocean, was he saw this in the Scriptures, and he mapped them out. And by the way, if you doubt that there are jet streams in the ocean, just watch Finding Nemo. Really easy. You'll see it really <laughs> clear. But that wasn't the only thing he discovered. He also talked about a discovery he found in Ecclesiastes 1.6. Ecclesiastes 1.6, the Bible says, The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. The wind has a circuit? I thought the wind went where it wanted to. Well, he found out, yeah, it goes one way in one hemisphere. It goes the opposite way in the other hemisphere. He found out how weather currents move. And for the first time in American history, he became, it was possible to predict weather. He's known as the father of naval meteorology. He said, guys, you see those clouds there? Do not sell this week. You want to wait? And suddenly weather changes because we can now start predicting things. It's interesting to see all the discoveries he made, how much it has changed our life. Now, this is the mid-1800s. This is technology that revolutionized the world. And there are a number of statues to Matthew Mari. Of course, we've been tearing them down in the last two or three years. The statues to Matthew Mari, and if you look at the statues, it's interesting that right by his feet, all of them have the Bible there. Because this is where he found his scientific ideas. How about that? The Bible is not just a spiritual book, it's got science as well. And then if I take you to a guy named James Kent, he's called the father of American jurisprudence. He's one of the two founding fathers who created the American judicial system. The American judicial system is based on what we call circuit courts. States have circuit courts, we have levels of courts. There are federal circuit courts. There's the First Circuit and the Fifth Circuit and the Seventh Circuit and the Ninth Circuit. Every Supreme Court justice is over a circuit. I was just in Colorado, they're in the Tenth Circuit. Justice Neil Gorsuch is over the Tenth Circuit. And so all the justices have that. But back Back in the day, the way it worked was the justices got on horseback and rode the circuit. They went throughout the circuit and they checked up on stuff. You didn't all go to D.C. It wasn't, let's go to D.C. and see what's happening. It was the courts left and the courts went out. And that's where circuit courts got started in the states. You had judges that rode the circuit. And that riding the circuit, where'd it come from? Well, it came, it's told us very clearly by James Kent. He quoted 1 Samuel 7, verses 15 and 16. It says, And in those days, Israel, in, in those days, Samuel judged Israel. And he rode the circuit from Gilgal to Mitzvah to all the other towns. Oh, look at that. He had a judge over Israel, and he got on his horse and rode a circuit and went from town to town to town to town and judging in those towns. 
See, that's where our circuit court system came from. Now today it's very different. Now we do it electronically. You still have Supreme Court justices who are circuit, but they don't ride the circuit anymore. Now the circuit comes to them electronically. But then you also have people like Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin started the first hospital in America, 1751, the Pennsylvania Hospital. He started the first health care system in America. And he quoted Luke 10.35 as the reason he did so. As a matter of fact, to this day, if you walk in the old door of the, Phil the Pennsylvania Hospital from 1751, it still has his logo there with Luke 10.35 as the reason he started the health care system. See, there's so much that happened in America that came out of the Bible people don't have a clue about unless you actually go back and see history or read the Bible and know what it does and know what it stands for. So Franklin Roosevelt summed it up this way. President Roosevelt said, In the formative days of the Republic, the directing influence the Bible exercised on the fathers of the nation is conspicuously evident. Really? Did you get that in your history textbooks? I don't think it was conspicuously evident. And yet, a progressive liberal Democrat says, Guys, it's a no-brainer. We all know the Bible is the base of what goes on here. This is so different from what we're used to hearing today. He continued. He said, We cannot read the history of our rise and development as a nation without reckoning with the place the Bible is occupied in shaping the advances of the Republic. Oh, we had plenty of things that we did wrong. But when we got it right, it's because somebody took and applied the Bible to it and started moving in the right direction. You bet we had slavery. No question about it. Every other nation in the world had slavery. But we got out of it faster than other nations did. And we got out of it because we had more people who read the Bible and said, wait a minute, this is not the right thing to do. That's why so much of the abolition movement was led by preachers, particularly the first and second great awakening preachers. Because that's where we started making changes. Every time there's a fault, and that goes with human nature, we found ways to fix that fault by going back to the Scriptures. So this is the, this is the kind of history we have significantly. And looking at where we are statistically, we do a lot of polling work, do a lot of national polling. And what we know right now today is that only 9% of Christians read the Bible on a daily basis. So instead of knowing the Bible so much that we can just quote it like Ben Franklin or Washington or others, most don't have a clue what it says. Only one out of nine Christians reads the Bible. 72% of Americans profess to be Christians. One out of nine read the Bible. Or Christians, 9% read the Bible. And then it's only 6% that have a biblical worldview. For example, if I said, what does the Bible say about minimum wage? You should be able to say, Jesus has an entire teaching on that in Matthew 20, verse 15. Most people can't put a single verse to minimum wage. If I say, what does the Bible say about the capital gains tax? Oh, Jesus got two teachings on that. One's in Luke 19, the other's in Matthew 25. Had no clue. What, what does the Bible say about progressive taxes? What does the Bible say about flat taxes? What's this? Bible, great economic system. The Bible's great on all sorts of stuff. Only 1 in 16 Americans today can put Bible verses to so much of what we used to be able to do in previous generations. The kind of history I've shown you tonight. So, where we are I think that John Quincy Adams kind of helps put the perspective on this. We started with John Quincy Adams. When John Quincy Adams was president of the United States, he wrote a book for 10-year-old Americans showing 10-year-old Americans how to read through the Bible from cover to cover once every year. I don't care whether you're Trump or Biden. What do you think happens today if either one of those guys wrote a book for 10-year-old Americans showing them how to read through the Bible from cover to cover once a year? Either one of them get their brains beat in. That's what the president did back then. We've taken that book, we've reprinted it. It's an ebook that's out there. It's a lot of fun to read. But in, in, in telling 10 year olds, guys, you've got to read through the Bible once every year, this is part of what he told them. He says, No book in the world deserves to be so unceasingly studied and so profoundly meditated on as the Bible. 
He said, I myself for many years have made it a practice to read through the Bible once every year. And that was the practice in America. That was the practice until the Supreme Court struck it down. Public schools went through the Bible every year. That was part of what happened. So this is nothing new that he'd read through it once every year. But he's telling the 10-year-olds this. And he says, and by the way, 10-year-old, that would be maybe fourth grade. We might consider fourth grade. He says, I've always endeavored to read with the same spirit which I now recommend to you. So how do I recommend the Bible to you? He says, I always read it with the intention and desire that it may contribute to my advance in wisdom and virtue. When I read the Bible, it's not a spiritual book. I'm not looking to get blessed. I'm looking for stuff that will change my thinking, my, my wisdom. I'm looking for stuff that will change my virtue, my behavior. I'm always looking for things to apply. Matter of fact, he kept a diary for 68 years. Uh, 23 years he never missed a day's entry in his diary. He started his diary when he was 11 years old. He died when he was 79. Those 68 years he kept a diary. It's interesting to see what he would record in the diary over that period of time. Uh, and and it, he writes, it says, you know, as I read the Bible every year, I often just decide at the start of the year, what do I want to look for in the Bible this year? And he said, one year I read through the Bible looking for all the things it said about banking and finances. One year I read the Bible looking for everything it said about criminal justice and due process. He would just choose a topic every year, and that's just what he looked through for. Of course, they had back then as well, but he just wanted to see what he can apply because he's in public the United States. He's the Secretary of State. He's a U.S. Senator. He's a U.S. Congressman for 17 years. He served as a diplomat in five different nations. He's appointed the U.S. Supreme Court. He's just looking for what he can apply. See, this is what we were telling 10-year-olds back then. This is what we were telling 4th graders back then. And this is 4th grade. Interesting. Do you know, every government school, no, let me take it back. Every state has records of state education. You can go back to, for example, Thomas Jefferson is the one who founded the public schools of Washington, D.C. in 1805. Washington, D.C. is a brand new city. The first president in there was John Adams for about six months in 1801. By 1805, they had founded the education. Thomas Jefferson founded the plan of education for Washington, D.C. public schools. And once it was founded, they came out with an annual report saying, here's what happened in the schools of D.C. this year. You can find that for every state. You can find that. You go back, you take Wisconsin. Go back and when Wisconsin's a territory, you will have territorial reports on education every year. Once it becomes a state, you have annual reports. And it's interesting to see what those reports look like. And we have reports from all the states. But I'm just going to take one as an example. I'm going to take New Jersey. I want to show you the 1816 public school reports of New Jersey. 1816 public school reports. And they're talking about first and second graders. They call them first and second classes, but we'd call them first and second graders. It says, all the scholars of the first and second classes commit to, portion, commit to memory portions of the New Testament or Psalms, a lesson of the Catechism, several hymns, and the text of the preceding Sabbath. Every first and second grade kid in New Jersey public schools in 1816 is memorizing that. What do they mean, text in the new sab uh, preceding Sabbath? Simply means whatever Pastor Paul preached on last Sunday, we're going to memorize every Bible verse he mentioned. That's part of what we do at public school. So wherever you went to church, you just bring those verses in. We're going to memorize. Now this is this is first and second graders, and there, as always, are some kids sharper than other kids, right? We know that. And so here's one of the sharp kids. The report continues says one of the scholars has committed to memory the Book of John and the first thirty Psalms together with the hundred nineteenth Psalm. That's either a first or second grader. It doesn't say which, but it's from those two classes. So that kid's memorized all the Gospel of John and 30 Psalms and the 119th Psalm? And, and that's got to be seven, eight years old, right? Watch what else. Now, see, that's a smart kid. The rest of the kids are pretty dumb. The rest of the kids, it says, the majority of the scholars have committed 
committed to memory of the Gospel of John. Everybody else memorized the Gospel of John. But this kid was so smart, he memorized the Gospel of John and 30 chapters of Psalms and Psalm 1. Really, I don't think I know a one in a hundred Christians today who's memorized the Gospel of John. Maybe one in a thousand. And that was first and second grade public school kids in New Jersey. And that's why it's a lot of fun to go back through the public school records of any state back then. And you'll find the Bible was part of what we did in education. And it seems so foreign and so strange. It's not. This is, this is what it was and what we did. We've had a lot of vaccination discussion in recent years. Forget COVID. Just get that out of your mind. Let, let's think about vaccinations like measles or smallpox or something else. Why do we do vaccinations? Because the premise of a vaccination is that it gives you enough of something so you develop an immunity to it. That's what America's done with Christianity and the Bible in recent decades. We've had just enough of it that we're immune to that. We don't really need to study it hard. That's why we hire people to preach to us, because they're paid to do that. So what's happened is we really have become more biblically illiterate than any generation in American history, hands down. There's no question about it. 72% professed Christian, but nobody's really getting in the book and, and studying the book like they need to. And, and that's where it's really, really significant. As a result, we have biblical literacy at a rate we've never seen. Again, only one out of 16 can actually put Bible verses to, to public policies, even though the Bible deals with all that. And one of the areas you can really see that is even in the basics. When, when you go back and look at God's institutions, you know, God created three institutions in the Bible. Uh, Genesis 1 through 3, you see the creation of the family. Adam and Eve and children, that's the family. Then in Genesis 9, you see the creation of civil government. God delivers to Noah what are called the Noahide Laws. That's the first recorded civil government in human history. Any record, secular or religious, there's nothing before Noah. There's seven laws God gives him. He says, here's what you do with murderers. Here's what you do with thieves. And they're civil laws. That's the first civil government is, is in, in Genesis 9. And then the book of Exodus is all about how we have corporate relationship with God. It's about the temple, the tabernacle, and setting up the tabernacle, what we would call church. It's a type and shadow of the church. So these are all God's institutions that He ordained. And it's interesting, we know a lot about at least two of them, or we think we do. It's the government one we don't know much about. And that hasn't always been the way it is today. If you go back to the Founding Fathers era, there was a guy named John Locke who was a political philosopher, who was a theologian. He was out of England, and in 1690 he wrote a book called The Two Treatises of Civil Government. Now, that book had huge influence in America. As it came time to do the Declaration of Independence, the guy who made the motion for the Declaration of Independence was Richard Henry Lee. He signed the Declaration of Independence. Richard Henry Lee said, we, quote, copied the Declaration out of the two treatises of government. Now, that's significant. That tells you that, that book had a lot of impact on him. And if you read that book, it's not that long. It's less than an inch thick. It's less than 400 pages long. But in those 400 pages, he cites the Bible more than 1,500 references from the Bible on how civil government is supposed to operate. Most Christians today, oh, government's secular. We don't get involved in that stuff. They did back then because the Bible talked about it. 1,500 references on civil government? There's a lot there. So why do we pull ourselves out of an arena that God created and about which He said so much? See, there's, we have a friend down in, in, in Georgia. He talked about this. He said, you know what? God made all three institutions. He said I've been a two-thirds Christian. I've been doing a lot with family and with church, but I haven't been doing anything with government. He said, I, I need to get into that area as well. I, I've got to become a two-thirds Christian. I need to deal with all that. I can't just cut government out. 
And that's changed this whole philosophy. And this is where America used to be. Did you know that the voter turnout at the time of Daniel Webster, which was two generations after the founding fathers, you look at the elections of 1820, 50 years after the Declaration, voter turnout was 100%. They had 5,000 adults in the region, and they voted all 5,000 in the election. Daniel Webster got 4,990 votes. So that means the guy in the family voted for him. Everybody else voted for Daniel. But nonetheless, you had 100% voter turnout. See, that we were stewards of government. We got involved in, in things like elections, which is what we have to do now. So when you look at where we are now, we've got to get involved in all three areas. We've got to get back involved in civil government. And in doing that, Benjamin Rush, I think, lays out the best exegesis for why that's important. Remember, we've talked about Benjamin Rush all night, father of public schools under the Constitution. This is the piece in 1790 that got him that title. This is where he said, America, we now have 13 nations that have become one nation. So what do we need to teach in our public schools to keep us all a nation instead of breaking up into 13 states again? How do we keep us a nation? And so this is what he laid out. He talked about public schools, and he said three purposes to public schools. He said the number one purpose of public schools is to teach students to love and serve God. He said the number two purpose of public schools is to teach students to love and serve their country. The number three purpose of public schools is to teach students to love and serve their family. Notice the order he chose. Nearly every Christian I know would say, no, 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 it should be God, family, and then country. And he said, no, it should be God, country, and family. And he pointed out the reason it's that order is, he said, if you ever lose control of your country, your country will become the great enemy to your family. And that's exactly what we've seen. See, this is why parents are figuring out what's going on with schools now. It turns out we thought our schools were great. It turns out they're the cesspools of so much that's, that's really ruining society. The stuff we're teaching on, on hating one another and hating others around us. And you have gender what clauses? What, what, what are you doing to that? And wait a minute. These, what are these quick escape things that you have on the Internet so the kids, their parents won't see what they've been looking for? All the stuff that parents are finding out now. And this is why we've seen school boards become such a big focus since Loudoun County and, and, and since Fairfax County in Virginia two and a half years ago when so much of this came out. It's been a, a, a really big issue over that period of time. And so local elections have been a big deal. And by the way, let me just point out something about our non-involvement in elections. Let me go to something as simple as voting. Because when you look at voting, according to the Constitution, there's only two things you have to do to be a voter in America. You've got to be 18 years old and a legal citizen. And that's it. Now, in addition to that, we want you to register to vote. But the constitutional requirements are those two. And statutorily, we need you to register to vote. And so... When you register to vote, all you got to do is sign a piece of paper, and then you can do all the constitutional stuff. At this point, only 65.3% of adult Americans have registered to vote. We have roughly 100 million Americans who have said, I don't care what happens to the country. I'm not going to be part of nothing that goes on. And I don't mean 100 million Americans. I mean 100 million adult Americans. So we have 100 million eligible voters who have said, I'm not going to be part of the process. Now, when it comes to the elections, there's two types of elections we have in America. The, the one that has the biggest turnout is presidential elections. In the last 11 presidential elections, we averaged 58% of registered voters voting. But that's 58% of registered voters, 54% of registered voters, not Americans. That's 54% of 65.3%, which means only 36% of Americans vote in presidential elections. It takes half of that to win. When you come to the elections like we're having this year, they're called off-year elections. And the last 21, and by the way, off-year elections is when we choose governors, and it's when we choose our, our senators and our congressmen, our legislators. In the last 21 off-year elections, 
the one we're having this year, the average voter turnout is 38%. But that's 38% of registered voters, which is 38% of 65.3%, which means 26% of adults vote for governors and senators, et cetera, and it takes half of that to win. Now, what that means is the last 11 presidential elections, one out of five Americans has chosen the president, and one out of eight Americans has chosen the governor and the senators, et cetera. And then when you get to the local level, at the local level, the average voter turnout is 6%, but that's 6% of registered voters. That's 6% of 65.3%, which means 4% of adults vote in the local elections, and it takes half of that to win. I'll give you an example. Let's go to Los Angeles. Los Angeles is the second largest city in the United States. The population of the city of Los Angeles is larger than the population of 23 separate individual states. Eric Garcetti is the mayor of Los Angeles. And boy, was he faith hostile. I'm going to shut churches down, but everybody else can stay open. I mean, he went after church. He, that's, that's his moral system. That's his value system. And it's interesting, Eric Garcetti brags about the fact that he was elected mayor of Los Angeles with 2.9% of the vote. Wow, that's like a governor level. Yeah. You know, mega churches in Los Angeles to have any, any mayor they want if they wanted to. But they're just not involved in the process. They don't have to put up with what they've got from Garcetti. And you see, the same if you go to something like Houston. In Houston, that's the fourth largest city in the United States. The population of Houston is larger than the population of 20 separate states. And Houston elected Anise Parker mayor. She's the first lesbian mayor, openly lesbian mayor, elected in Houston history. And she was elected with 3.3% of the vote. 2.3 million people in Houston. Really? 3.3%? See, this is where things can turn. We think we're stuck with what we've got right now. All we've got to do is show up and, and get that percentage up. And it turns all sorts of things around. And let me give you some examples. I, I, I've given you some of the, the national stuff. Let me, let me go to what's happening even at the state level, not just local. But, you know, Chad mentioned Virginia, what happened to Faith Winds in Virginia. Okay, they get 312 churches. Now, understand there are tens of thousands of churches in Virginia. So we get 312 churches together in Virginia. And as he said, found people, and none of them were mega churches. It was just community churches, just churches out, average churches. And said, okay, guys, we got to find people who have our values and beliefs who have never before registered, and we got to get them registered and get them to vote in this governor's race. And as he pointed out, they got 77,000 folks registered and voted, and Yonkin went for 65,000. I think that might be the margin of victory, just those 312 churches, but let's not stop there. In those 312 churches, you see, 2 Timothy 2.5 says that you can't be crowned in a race unless you run according to the rules. What are the rules of the elections? Most of us don't have a clue. Well, you can't be crowned if you don't run the rules. I better find out what the rules are. So out of those 312 churches, they found 1,343 people to be active in, in and voter, voter stuff. 300 of them were state certified election officials, 1,043 were poll watchers. So there's 1,343 got involved in the elections, and interestingly enough, they identified 5.2% of the vote as being fraudulent. They found one guy who was registered to vote in 27 different locations. They found a cow pasture where 17 people voted out of that cow pasture. They're not even building the cow pasture. 17 people. So they went through and they found 5.2% of the vote as being fraudulent. Take that off the, take that off the books and that'll, that'll win an election for you. And then on top of that, they said, you know, we, we churches out here in the country, we still have half a brain left. Those guys in northern Virginia don't have any brain left. They work for Washington, D.C., and they're crazy. So we're going to have to run up the score out here in the country or we still have a brain. And, and we just have to have a higher turnout. We've got to get more than we normally do. 
So what happened, instead of having a 35% turnout in the rural areas, they had a 64% turnout in the rural areas. That'll win an election for you too. See, you look at Virginia, that didn't ever make national news. I'm involved, I've been involved in political races for a long time, held political office in Texas. It's really clear what happens if you do it. And let me take you to the local level. Let me just take you to some headlines. Let's take this one. Minnesota, Canada's opposing critical race theory, COVID-19 mandates to win Minnesota school board race. And I know more about the back of this story, but I'll just tell you, the media does not like talking about Christians in a favorable light. Uh, CNN a month ago came out with a piece that now the other national media has picked up. And Christians, if you're not a woke Christian, you're the biggest threat to America that is. You're a Christian dominionist, Christian nationalist, white Christian, whatever. And they've got all these names, that, and, and now they're being picked up and, and going out through social media as well. But significantly, a, as you look on these Minnesota races, you had just average parents and, and, and faith people getting involved. And the media thinks that, well, you're against what we stand for. And to the media and that liberal progressive side, some of the biggest things they have are CRT and COVID-19. I'm shocked at how many people I, I find still in the airports that just go berserk. And, and I mean, we have, I keep up with the science. I was a science major. I was a school principal, taught math and science. And at this point, it's just the, the numbers are unbelievable. Uh, 92% of pregnant women who got vaccinated had miscarriages. 29% of young people, 18 to 29, who got vaccinated now have heart problems. Um, this poll came out, uh, not poll, a, a peer-reviewed study came out again this week, again, multiple, showing that masks have absolutely zero effect uh, on that. Because if you know the size of the, the uh, virus and, and you measure it by microns, how many microns it is, and then if you see how many microns the opening of the mask is, it's like trying to stop a swarm of mosquitoes with a barbed wire fence. The average micron size of the virus is like shooting a BB gun through a 14-foot opening. That's how small the virus is compared. If you got that mask on and you could smell perfume with somebody around you, I guarantee you that the virus gets through there. If you can suck air in and breathe air, I guarantee you the virus gets through there. And so we've still got this, this thing where we're fixated on it. So for the progressives in the media, you know, COVID-19 mandates and making sure the government tells you what to do with your health care and, and the stuff on and COVID-19 and, and all the stuff with CRT, it's big to them. So the way they describe Christians is being anti-CRT, anti-COVID. And you're going to see that in a lot of headlines. Let me take you through it. So not only have we seen changes in Minnesota where parents are starting to get involved and saying, we're not going to put up with this anymore. Let me take you to New Jersey. I love this one. New Jersey, a 19-year-old who saw his senior year disrupted by COVID shutdowns unseats the incumbent in the school board race. So the kid that lost his senior year said, you cost me my senior year. I'm running against you. He ran against the incumbent. He beat the incumbent by 17 points in New Jersey. And I will point out it is really nice to finally have an adult on the school board in Jersey. I mean, it's just it's kind, of, kind of fun. Let me show you this one. Slate of conservative candidates declare victory in hotly contested Denver Chubber School race. Colorado Springs area. We got 1,500 churches involved in Colorado, and they went after school boards. We got 78 school boards. We got the Denver School Board. Now, Denver, that's a really blue progressive city. It is. And now Christians have the school board in Denver. You know how many hundred thousands of kids will get a different view of the world because of that? Same with Colorado Springs. We got all four Colorado Springs school boards. Keep going. Three or four conservative challenges win Wichita. Wichita is the second most liberal city in Kansas. Kansas City and then Wichita. We got three or four in Wichita. Yeah. And we also got 
got Treasure Valley, but that's Boise. Boise is the most liberal city in Idaho. Got the school board in Boise. And then look at this one. Anti-CRT candidates win Dallas Area School Board. And they say they call it anti-CRT. I know the candidates. I know what happened. And in Dallas, in Dallas, 51 churches got together and they said there's 15 school board seats in Dallas. Let's get involved. They won all 15 school board seats, 15 to 15 with those 51 churches. They won every school board seat by 60-40 margin. They won most of them by 70-30 margin. Then you also have Houston. I know what happened to Houston because I was part of that. And Houston got churches involved. Christians got the school board in Houston. Again, hundreds of thousands of kids. The churches got involved. When you only have a 2% turnout or 2% of what it takes to win, you can win really easily. In a city of 2.3 million, we won the school board races with between five and 8,000 votes on school board out of a city of 2 to 3 million. Easy to get churches together for something like that. In Fort Worth two months ago, in Fort Worth, the school, Mercy Church in Fort Worth said we need to do something with our school board too. There were 21 school board seats in Fort Worth. They won 20 out of the 21. I mean, this is going on all over the nation, not making national news. It's what happens when we get involved in the process. We can make a difference, and we're seeing it all over the country. So, in shutting this thing down, we've got to become three-thirds Christians. We've got to be active in this arena as well. We've stayed out of it for way too long. We've got to get active in that arena again. And getting active in that arena, go back to, to reading the Bible on a daily basis. Go back to memorizing the Bible. You know, Jeff Foxworthy had this program a few years ago, you know, Jeff, Jeff Foxworthy TV, and it was called, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? We ought to have one that says, Do you more, know more of the Bible than a New Jersey second grader? I mean, it's just a second grader who's memorized the Gospel of John. We need to get back into Bible memory work and be serious about it because that is what made America the, the nation that it is. So I challenge you with all those areas. I'll close with this challenge from Charles Finney. Charles Finney, oops, I, I, I'll skip Finney, excuse me. Uh, I'll, I'll just say if you haven't seen this stuff before, if this is new history for you, outside we have a book called The American Story which goes back through documents. And again, this comes out of so many of the original writings we have. Founder's Bible goes through and shows you the Bible verse that the Founding Fathers used to create the policies they did. So there, there's just a lot of good stuff we can point to. Chad, come on, close this out, bro. He's forgotten more since breakfast than we've known all our lives. Uh, you know, everywhere we go, and we, we do this church to church, people say, we, we haven't heard of y'all. Well, because we, we don't advertise, and, you know, we spend a fraction of the dollars. I, I can't tell you, I think I told John this on the phone, all my political buddies in D.C. laughed at me when we started in Virginia in January. And they were the first ones. In fact, if you'd have gotten between them and a television camera, you'd have been injured because they want to take credit for it. Because they all started putting money at the end. They all started, you know, want to take credit. We don't care about the credit, y'all. We're losing the country. We're losing our country to people who hate God and who hate truth and don't even know what's made our country special. You know, we don't have to charge the beach at D-Day. But boy, can we go find, all, all we did, we picked out 10 house districts in Virginia. And I told the pastors, we're going to run up the score. I had seven pastors on my team in Virginia. We're going to run up the score once you go talk to churches. And, and frankly, it ought to come from a 501c3 than a political standpoint. Just go vote biblical values. And that's what we do with our 501c3. We are committed to maximizing Christian vote all across America at every level. We stumbled on the election integrity stuff. Everywhere we went, people said, what can we do? We want to do something. We don't know what to do. 
I, I was a state party chairman. I worked at the RNC. I, I've been at every level. I, I know what to do. And so I said, I tell you what, I wrote a little card. We're going to go to every county election commission. We went to 44 of the 101 counties in Virginia. It said, we're here to pray for you, here to pray with you. How do we help? And one of our pastors, Dr. Mike Edwards, you probably know Dr. Edwards in Virginia, he goes in and there's a sign on the wall, now hiring seasonal workers to count early vote. He said, what are seasonal workers? And the lady starts stumbling. She said, well, you know, they pick fruit in the summer and the fall and they're, they're inexpensive. And he said, are they Americans? And the lady said, ah, uh, ah, uh, some of them. He said, can I bring my church? Those 1,343 people, that's how it came. We're doing that in eight states across America, and one of them happens to be Wisconsin. And we're partnering with groups, and I'm my buddy Tony Nasvick's here to talk to you for two minutes about what we're doing, because I believe every Christian, you ought to go work a day at the polls. 2 Timothy 2.5, eyeballs on the process. Tony, come up and tell them what we're doing with election integrity. Our, is, isn't this guy awesome? Can you give him a round? And David, awesome again. I am so personally honored to be a part of this uh, organization, and um, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants here that are putting their lives, <coughs> excuse me, and their sacred honor on the line. We have an opportunity and a responsibility as just being a normal Joe as I am, is you talked about the ankle connection that almost went the wrong way on the words. I say we gotta get up off our apathies in these pews and engage and go out to our communities and make a difference. This organization will help you do that. So tonight, if you, before you leave here tonight, make sure that you have an opportunity to, to take a picture of that QR code. Once you get out onto the website, that'll give you all sorts of different ways that you can participate from being a poll worker, a poll watcher, uh, uh, donating your time, it's all there, and it's all done for you. But please don't leave. And to help you guys, encourage you guys to do that before you go, the seventh person that registers that QR code is going to get a signed copy of David's book, and I'll be signing it in the back later. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> David will be signing it. Um, but uh, thank you, and uh, I look forward to working with you guys and helping you guys boots on the grounds, grassroots, taking our light into our communities and making a difference for the Lord, for the mission that is America, for his glory. Bless you guys. Thank you. God bless you, brother. Thank you, Tony. You know, it's, it's hold your camera up. It'll take you there. All we get is your email. All we do is connect you to groups that are making sure you get the training. And we have one pastor in Virginia. All he's doing is slotting you to precincts and counties across the country so that you can go and participate in this process. We, we've been honored to be here. We've been all across the country doing this. Like I said, we're leaving tonight. Got about a three-hour drive. We'll be in Iowa the next couple days. We'll be in Texas. Then we go to Pennsylvania. We're coming back, uh, Bob will know, October the 9th, actually. Uh, for an event in, uh, I think it's Eau Claire. And um, I know pastor is going to come up and close in prayer. Keep us in your prayers. And um, we, we just, we believe with all our hearts, Christians ought to be involved in every bit of this process. Let us show you how to do that. God bless you. Pastor, come up and close in prayer, brother. Let's give him a hand. Thank you so much. Thank you,